My name is Fiona Zeiger and you're listening to the Migration Podcast. There are safe and legal pathways outside of traditional resettlement for asylum seekers and refugees looking to relocate. These are usually called complementary pathways. Such pathways make use of existing legal migration routes, leading to, for example, residence titles for the purpose of education, employment and family reunification. Or they are acquired through humanitarian and sponsorship schemes. Here to tell us more about complementary pathways are Zvesta Vankova and Albert Kahler. We've been wanting to speak about your research on complementary pathways for a while and to dive into the subject matter right away. Um, I'd like to ask you to tell me a little bit about complementary pathways. What are they and what exactly are they complementary to? Thank you very much, Fiona, for this invitation. We are very happy to be here. So uh, to your first question, if we take a look at the official definition uh, of UNHCR, which is one of the organizations that's promoting this uh, complementary pathways, we'll see that these are legal avenues for refugees that provide lawful stay in a third country where their international protection needs are met. Uh, why are they called complementary? They're additional or complementary to resettlement. And the idea is that they do not substitute the protection that's afforded to refugees under the international protection regime. Just to give you an idea what they can be, um, such legal avenues can be based on labor migration. They could be based on family unification, existing family unification procedures, but also um, specialized instruments such as community sponsorship and humanitarian admission. Some of them, though, we need to stress, uh, such as labor migration and education-based complementary pathways, require some uh, sort of facilitation or adjustments uh, to allow for refugees to access them because they're based on the existing immigration systems. Um, and if we take a look at the definitions of UNHCR, but also of the EU, because also the EU is supporting complementary pathways, we'll see that their target groups are people in need of protection, which means that both refugees with recognized uh, refugee status, but also those who are de facto refugees, such as the ref Syrians in Lebanon or Jordan, should be considered as uh, the target groups for this uh, complementary pathways. Indeed, it's, uh, it's a form for onward mobility for refugees. Uh, it could also be you know, a route for entry from the country of origin. Um, and both have been relevant in the past yeah, 10, 10 years. Uh, for example, among academics, there's this, this uh, network of scholars at risk, uh, for example, which, which helps people who are at risk of, of persecution of finding temporary placements in, at other universities in other countries. And that's actually a very good example of, of complementary pathway, which has been uh, yeah, in existence for a very long time. It's, uh, it's a very traditional yeah, long-standing practice in, in academia uh, to help core academics who, who are under danger in, in their countries of, of uh, origin. Similarly, also the Pen Club, one of the largest networks of um, yeah, writers, authors, has been engaged in this for, for a very long time. And Especially for, for students, um, there are a number of schemes providing, providing scholarships for talented uh, students who would like to, to study abroad. And the German the, uh, exchange service, for example, has about, uh, such a scheme for Syrians, which is now um, probably 
it's expiring, but you would probably know more about this. Uh, <laughs> and actually, there uh, quite a number of, of universities are providing such, um, yeah, such possibilities and, and now for, for Ukrainians as well. Are complementary pathways then not always part of the official, let's say, migration policy? Because you also spoke about these networks for researchers under threat or in danger. Um, but at the same time, you have like very established migration routes like student mobility or, you know, trying to attract foreign students. And that are then focused on um, or especially trying to focus on people who from conflict zones or who may be already displaced to kind of open up alternative routes to seeking asylum. So is this like a kind of a mixed, a mixture of different pathways, like formally in migration policy already, and perhaps a little less formalized through these networks where they try to identify people who may need their support and then try to enable their migration? Absolutely. So this could be measures or let's say legal channels that already exist in the immigration legislation of a country. Mm-hmm. But uh, as I said in the beginning, they might need some facilitation to allow um, refugees to access them, such as, for example, uh, facilitation when uh, not do- uh, no documents are available or no uh, diplomas are available, for example, or when there there's a requirement for financial uh, contribution and, and stuff like that. But then they could be um, they could be sp- specifically um, created instruments that allow uh, for educational or labor mobility, as the one that uh, Albert pointed out. Of course, they're they're policy instruments, but they're also rooted in the existing legislation of a country. And then they could be completely different instruments uh, uh, that are created for these purposes, such as the humanitarian corridors and uh, community sponsorship, which again, of course, in the end of the day, are based on some sort of uh, legislation that exists in the country that's hosting them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think one important thing to point out is that yeah, normally refugees who are recognized in a, well, many refugees who, are, who have a status, uh, even a status and are recognized in a certain kind of way, often face difficulties, severe difficulties when trying to access mobility. European countries, for example, under the, under the visa code, they are obliged uh, to uh, assess the migration risk um, that a, a certain person uh, ah, so if, if one is a, a, a refugee or even worse, an asylum seeker, um, then in another country, uh, you, it's very difficult but, but, uh, to get an, a visa and the, um, probably a very, a very, yeah, well, the rejection is very likely. Uh, and then it needs to, to, to be there uh, needs to be a conscious decision by a certain embassy that they support the uh, that person's mobility, even though uh, in their normal risk assessment that would um, they they would expect that that person could stay could may want to stay on uh, for longer. So actually, the um, uh, under the current migration policy framework. Um, yeah, even even ordinary uh, mobility options that are available under legislation are often, often very difficult to assess uh, access for different types of people and especially from for people from the global south. I was wondering why or how did you come to study these alternative migration pathways for asylum seekers and refugees? 
Um, I got inspired actually by my PhD findings. My PhD focused on, among other things, on Ukrainians who are engaging in circular migration between Ukraine and Poland. And this was happening just, uh, my fieldwork was happening just after the annexation of Crimea. So uh, my interviewees shared that instead of applying for asylum in Poland, uh, they prefer to use the available uh, legal migration avenues and actually to find uh, jobs in, in Poland rather than going for the asylum procedure, knowing that actually just won't lead them anywhere. And a little, a little bit after my fieldwork ended, uh, uh, we witnessed uh, the adoption of the New York Declaration for Refugees and Migrants and uh, afterwards the Global Compact on Refugees and this idea for complementary pathways based on labor migration and other existing legal channels was featured there, which um, made me even more intrigued into the topic. And I decided that actually I want to know more. And I actually applied for funding and got funding for a postdoc, which is um, devoted to that topic. And it looks specifically into the implementation of, of this uh, complementary pathways idea. And you, Albert, do you have any particular reason or was it mere interest? One more distant reason is that I got into, well, interested into refugees actually without really an attention to mobility uh, ways back when I started to, to work a little bit on Rwanda and when the genocide that, that happened in 1994 and I looked for reasons why, why, why this happened um, in, in basically in, in, in the post in, in the, the late colonial period and basically looked at, at refugees and displacement as an expression of exclusionary citizenship. So it was always this connection between rights, citizenship, and uh, lack of rights that I that I got got interested uh, into. And, and the core um, issue or core dimension of citizenship is mobility rights. That has been uh, in the 19th century, for example, in Europe, um, the expansion of internal uh, freedom of movement for citizens and not to have their lords or uh, employers to, to leave a place, that has been one of the fundamental uh, yeah, ingredients of, of the modern citizenship revolution. So that's a, that's, that's a long story. Um, the, the more immediately, the, the issue in general drew attention, more attention in the context of the uh, 2015 refugee crisis, which actually in, on, on the political level really started two years earlier when uh, there was this major shipwreck off the coast of Lampedusa with, I think, more than 800 uh, people dying. And it didn't provoke, but it... it, it, it um, elevated the discussions that were having in, in, uh, happening on an expert level on on safe pathways for for uh, refugees to access protection on a very different level and then uh, i got involved in a project studying that and the possibility for that and what what it would involve to set up a program that it would be based on on labor market mechanism on employment and I was intrigued by the interest that, and also the readiness that many stakeholders showed to, to be engaged in that. Uh, and at the same time, that to see that as a program, it hardly existed anywhere, at least in, in, in terms of, of uh, labor um, and employment-based program. Are these complementary pathways being put into practice already? Or rather, where are they being put into practice? 
and um, what can we learn from it so far? Yes, we definitely see more and more examples of pilot projects mainly uh, being put in practice. If we take a look at globally and take as an example, labor migration-based complementary pathways, we have uh, a very successful pilot in Canada. We have pilots in Australia and the UK. If we take a look at um, what's going on in Europe, and we definitely see that uh, there's also interest into that in Europe. We have a big um, uh, project funded by the EU Asylum Migration Integration Fund and managed by the International Organization for Migration in uh, Belgium, Ireland, Portugal, and UK, where we are, we, we could expect to see such policies ref- uh, facilitating access to the labor market for refugees. We also see interest on behalf of Finland. And if we take a look at other instruments, we can see uh, we can see community sponsorship programs mushrooming in Germany, in Ireland, in Spain, for example. Uh, there are also humanitarian uh, corridors in Italy and France, just to give you an idea. And much more, actually, um, scholarships for refugees uh, or the so-called uh, educational uh, pathways. The main, uh, I think the main problem so far is that we are still in the pilot phase, which means that very limited numbers of people can benefit from uh, from these pathways. And um, it's just, we, we still need to see how they're implemented, who gets to benefit, who gets to actually access such pathways and what are the obstacles to access such pathways. So I would say that uh, I think scalability is the, the, main, the main challenge when it comes to the existing pilots. And for those countries who haven't engaged in such, in such pathways, I would say political feasibility, because piloting or starting such, such complementary pathways requires merging migration and asylum law, which have been usually considered as two separate silos, especially after the adoption of the Refugee Convention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would concur with that. And um, I think one, one additional aspect is that one can view complementary pathways from two angles. On the one hand, as policy programs that are set up by, by governments, sometimes with the help of international organizations and others, or as pathways that refugees themselves try to uh, access. And seeing from the, from, from the point of refugees, such pathways have been used very often and multiple times, but if they are not assisted and are, if they are not taking place in the framework of programs that are thought out, there, there are major disadvantages on um, yeah in, in terms of aggregate out, uh, outcomes. So it might work out for individual refugees, but what we, we see and that's mobility options are really highly uh, socially selective. So it's those who have connections, who have networks, who have uh, access to financial capital, uh, cultural capital. Um, those can perhaps also access other mobility options than going spontaneously on a boat or uh, or being stranded uh, in in a, in a first country of asylum. So it works out maybe on the individual level, but not but for not for a greater category of of, of persons. Complementary pathways are actually in, in from that point of view can be also seen as an attempt to to achieve a greater match 
between the aspirations of refugees and what is on offer, and also maybe benefits uh, countries of, of destination that can uh, benefit from the from the skills that uh, certain uh, refugees bring, which is again another kind of drawback uh, of the complementary pathways um, debate that we already well mentioned a couple of times. We mentioned uh, educational pathways, employment-based pathways, and which usually refer to skilled persons. So uh, you see there is a certain social selectivity also there, but it offers for those uh, who have talent, there are, it offers new options. I think, and that's that's also uh, despite the fact that it's that it's selective, it's less randomly selective as it as spontaneous kind of arrange arrangements would be, uh, and it is fairer uh, and it's um, and also safer um, a safer uh, environment to access such uh, mobility options. Why is it important to investigate complementary pathways, and um, who benefits from your inquiries specifically? I think um, I'll go back to what I said in the beginning. It's one thing to have this very interesting idea, which potentially could help many people and uh, bring them out of protected displacement. But it's another to apply it in practice in different national contexts, which have various immigration systems and, and standards. And as I also said, this uh, complementary pathways, they are voluntary and they have discretionary nature. So it really depends on the country and its willingness uh, and the political feasibility whether such complementary pathways will be facilitated or developed. Another thing that uh, Albert mentioned is that uh, very often this, this um, complementary pathways are based on, on skills which means that countries might uh, that decide to develop them might actually engage into cherry picking and basically look for the so-called integrated refugees with integration potential, meaning that they have, uh, let's say, um, high education and desirable skills and probably no foreign languages. So they will be easy to integrate in the labor market and, and settle. But uh, this really opens a lot of questions. Uh, who can who, who can uh, become eligible, uh, who can access them, how are uh, potential uh, actors uh, coming together to implement them, who are these actors, uh, and um, how are, most importantly, universities or employers um, reaching out to all these people uh, who are based in first countries of, exam of asylum or in other, um, in other camps. So how, how is this link going to work? Also, from a legal perspective, what I could say could see is that one question is the access to, to these pathways, as I already mentioned, but another, uh, another question is what happens afterwards. So for example, what type of permits these people uh, get access to uh, that pertains to their security of residence? Uh, are they prone to labor exploitation? What's happening if they cannot uh, renew their permits or their, their work contracts? Uh, are they like uh, going to, to benefit, uh, to, to rely on the asylum system? And can they actually do this? And what happens if they're unsuccessful? So a lot of questions actually are still not, um, cannot be answered. We just need to really practice. And we need to flag these challenges to policymakers, but also the, the academic community in order to have a critical look into, into this issue. 
one key thing for me is really also showing alternatives and and complementary ways how refugee protection can be can be promoted and and also advanced in a in a in a way that might be attractive even to more restrictive policymakers. Of course, there's this danger of of, of cherry picking. But on the end, if we turn the argument around and say why should people be stuck in a certain country where uh, if they have a, a job offer or if they have found a, a certain I don't training that way or university education or whatever that they would like to get engage in. Or if they have family that would support them, why should they be stuck just for the, for the sake of the um, Dublin regulation or whatever? Um, there's other ways that um, on on an aggregate level will actually achieve better outcomes for everyone. Thank you very much, Albert and Svesta, for explaining everything on the Migration Podcast, for giving us an insight into complementary pathways, what they are, what kind of pilots exist out there. Yeah, it was really interesting to learn about this today. Svesta Vankova is postdoctoral researcher at Lund University. Albert Krala is assistant professor at the Department of Migration and Globalization at Danube University in Krems. 